This episode of the Asia Rising podcast was recorded in front of a live Zoom audience. To find out more about our upcoming events, where you can listen in and even ask a question yourself, go to latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. When Joko Widodo assumed the office of Indonesian president in 2014, it was at the crest of a wave of hope for change. However, six years on, he is struggling to deliver the reforms that Indonesia desperately needs. Here to discuss the challenges confronting Jokowi and Indonesia is Ben Bland, director of the Southeast Asia program at the Lowy Institute and author of Man of Contradictions, Joko Widodo and the Struggle to Remake Indonesia. Thank you for joining me, Ben. Good to be with you. So if you can uh, first give me a, a bit of context about why you wrote this book. Uh, you first arrived in Indonesia as a young journalist in 2012, and you were really thrust into the middle of a, an energetic election campaign. At the time, he was running to be governor of Jakarta at that point. So how do you describe his rise to presidency from what you saw and your encounters with him? And what about him made you want to write this book? I moved to Indonesia in 2012. I'd previously studied Indonesian politics and Indonesian history. Uh, I'd lived there briefly before, uh, but it was really a kind of baptism of fire, being there as a foreign correspondent for the Financial Times, um, thrust into covering this really hotly contested election campaign where Jokowi was the outsider. He had been previously mayor of Solo, his hometown in central Java, um, twice elected there. And But this was really a different kind of contest because Jakarta is the nation's capital, a huge city of more than 10 million people, a massive budget, one of the most high profile directly elected roles in Indonesia. It was really a different sort of contest. And that really made him into an, a national figure. Um, but I think it was it was the chance uh, to get a bit up close to him during the campaign, to meet him and interview him. Um, and just seeing how this guy who really didn't say much um, he was a furniture maker beforehand, a city mayor. Uh, he represented a different style of politics in a way because he wasn't from the elites, but he didn't give great speeches. He actually didn't promise to do much, but he electrified uh, the campaign in Jakarta and later for the presidency in 2014. And um, I just thought there was something fascinating about this man because he had this ability to connect with voters that I think is so unusual. So many politicians all around the world want to be leaders. They want to be the prime minister or the president, but they mm. really struggle to connect with people. But without saying much, he was really able to embody the hopes of Indonesians for, for a greater country. So I thought that was fascinating. And I was lucky enough to meet him a number of times as he rose through the ranks to the presidency. So I felt I had kind of the opportunity as well as the interest to, to write this book. This is the first English language biography I'd say it's the first political biography. It's, it's a short book because it's part mm. of the Lowy and Penguin special series that are necessarily uh, abbreviated. They're meant to be thought-provoking, punchy takes on, on an important issue. Uh, so I'd say, yeah, it's the first English language political biography. There's been a lot written um, in the academic community about Jokowi and about Indonesian politics, but nothing really in English for the general reader, uh, which is what I was trying to do is draw on a lot of the great academic work that's out there 
adding in my own research, uh, meeting the president and many of those who've worked with him over the years to try and paint a picture of this man and also his country and how he he sits really in the canon of Indonesian leaders and in Indonesian history and trying to really get people to be more interested in embracing the complexity of Indonesia rather than the kind of simplistic explanations and descriptions you often hear bandied about. Jokowi campaigned initially on a couple of big campaign promises. So one was being that he clean up the corruption problem and cut through the bureaucratic red tape that many saw was holding Indonesia at the back at the time. This has been one of the really big challenges of his presidency, I think, and going into the second term, I don't think even he would think that he's addressed it hugely well. So how would you assess his performance on kind of that campaign promise? Well, Jokowi in 2014 did have quite a wide-ranging manifesto, but if you look more closely at his own track record, I was expecting something more restrained and and humble in a sense. Uh, He managed to capture the imagination of a lot of civil society activists, a lot of democratic reformers in Indonesia who'd become very frustrated with the elite politics and the elite politicians of the day. But Jokowi himself was always someone who'd worked with the powers that be. He's always been an incremental changer. So I haven't been greatly surprised on the downside by what he's done, but certainly he hasn't made anywhere near the progress that would have been hoped. And in fact, in the last few years, he seems to be rolling back uh, to a certain extent, you know, the anti-corruption push um, under his watch, the parliament um, brought in a new law for the anti-corruption commission in Indonesia, which is highly respected, that, that effectively weakens its powers. And Jokowi's also been very successful at building a very large political coalition, now encompassing some three quarters of Indonesia's parliament. But the flip side of that is, you know, he's not really pushing for this deeper change that some wanted to see because he's basically got into bed with all these other elite politicians and business tycoons um, who, to some extent, are part of the problem uh, in terms of corruption and rent seeking and a political system that works uh, too often for the powerful and not for the people. So I think he has been a disappointment to some of his strongest supporters. But if you look more critically at his track record, um, I'm not surprised to see this man who's who's willing to work with the elite while also, in some sense, embodying the hopes of, of the wider Indonesian populace. The other big campaign promise that he went forward with was uh, that of economic reform. So he had the kind of lofty ideal, which I suppose is a, is a nice faraway target to have of Indonesia being a developed nation by 2045, and one of the world's five biggest economies up from 16. When you look at the surface of it and go, right, Indonesia's got this much population to draw on, that we can do so much, that's something that we can aim for. Do you think that that, that's something that he's making progress towards or he's not going to be able to achieve that sort of thing? As a former furniture maker, Jokowi has always had this very specific focus on on economic development. We saw that in his mayoralty of Solo in the governorship of Jakarta and then in the presidency, particularly on building out infrastructure, um, as well as trying to simplify business, the Byzantine business permitting processes in Indonesia to smooth progress for direct investment from local companies and foreign investors too. So he's made some progress, but GDP growth stayed static pretty much at around 5%, the trend it was on already. He'd talked of lifting it up to 7% a year, but he he got nowhere near that even before um, the coronavirus pandemic hit Indonesia, which is now sending the country, like a lot of others, um, into a recession. If we're Indonesia, it's the first recession since the Asian financial crisis of 
1997-98 and quite a devastating impact already on, on jobs, on, on poverty in Indonesia. So I think he was already going to struggle to meet those lofty ideals because just having a lot of people isn't enough. You need reforms to make the economy more productive, to create better quality jobs for Indonesians, something like three million young people entering the workforce every year. But if you can't create enough good jobs for those people, that sort of demographic dividend, as economists call it, uh, risks becoming something of a demographic disaster, having millions and millions of young people with inadequate employment prospects. And that challenge has been made so much harder, unfortunately, by, by the pandemic. Do you think that he suffers from something that uh, other uh, world leaders have kind of grasped with? Uh, one most recently, most notably, is, is Barack Obama. You build up an ideal so much and you, there's so much expectation riding on you that you, you're kind of destined to fail and not be able to uh, to achieve something so large that you're promising. You know, you, you can't live up to your hype almost. Do you think he's kind of grasping with that problem at the moment a bit? I think that's one of the inevitable challenges of, of politics, uh, especially mm. for leaders who either promise reform. In Jokowi's case, he promised it less than people painted their hopes and dreams onto him. And he was quite skillful in allowing them to do that. So I think that's inevitable. And this is also a problem for, you know, for the media, for the broader community of foreign policy analysts and academics who also tend to kind of layer on the hope and build it up and then jump on when things go wrong or, or the leader doesn't live up to those expectations and say how you know they've ruined it all etc so i think the reality of politics is it's always messy it's always complicated but especially when you're dealing with a country as big and uh, diverse as indonesia 270 million people spread o over thousands of islands many different religions and languages and ethnic groups so i think it was always going to be a challenge you're, you're right there and i think if you had um, a kind of more critical focus on Jokowi's early track record, you wouldn't have got so carried away with his potential. Clearly, he does embody a different way of doing things, and he's made a lot of progress on some key issues. But I think he's always been an incremental leader who's worked with the powers that be to try and push things in the right direction, but taking this very slowly, slowly approach. So I think in this case, it's almost more an issue of those uh, analyzing the situation, but also some of his supporters getting him wrong rather than him simply over-promising and under-delivering. And how do you think his, um, his economic ideals or his intentions have shaped the way that Indonesia has been approaching the Asian region? Well, Jokowi has this laser-like focus on the economy, as I suggested earlier, and that even relates to his foreign policy. So earlier this year, he told the Indonesian foreign ministry that 70 or 80 percent of their work should be on economic diplomacy, on basically finding investment for Indonesia and finding mm. markets overseas for Indonesia's goods and services, which is mostly goods because they're not exporting many services at the moment. That's how he's approached things. And I think that's inevitably led to a certain degree of disappointment. There's been this great hope in Australia, uh, in Washington, D.C., and, and more broadly around the world that Indonesia will step up and be almost the third force, if you like, in Asia, helping to balance out the rising uh, power of China, helping to kind of upkeep uh, the norms that we have in the region that many people feel are under threat. Um, but Jokowi really sees foreign policy as a tool to boost the domestic economy. And so he's really tried to avoid great power politics whenever he can. Of course, he's quite welcoming to Chinese investment. At the same time, there is a balancing game going on with other powers too. But broadly, he wants to get the most benefits for Indonesia with the fewest conditions. And I think that tallies, if you look at opinion polling, with what Indonesians want from their foreign policy. They 
they really want Indonesians who are overseas to be protected and they want the government to help drive economic growth and job creation at home. So I think it's a disappointment for a lot of the foreign policy community in Indonesia and outside as well. But he's pretty much in line with how Indonesians see things and also with the broader kind of trend lines, if you like, of Indonesian foreign policy that Indonesian leaders have by and large always kept to this policy of being independent and active, staying non-aligned and trying to maintain Indonesia's strategic autonomy rather than choosing sides or, or moving too closely to any one power or group of powers. Well, this desire to push the economy, especially uh, externally, and uh, the interactions with COVID have become a, a big problem for Jokowi, especially uh, when it comes to how the virus is treated and how it's approached and how open they're being with communication. So, how do you think the country is handling the COVID crisis and what do you think that'll have uh, as far as a, a kind of long-term economic impact for the country? We have to acknowledge that Indonesia came into this crisis in a really difficult position. Its health system was already overstretched and under-resourced, facing a, a big financial deficit. And by and large, the Indonesian government you know, struggles to execute policy on the ground. Uh, it's quite weak at policy implementation because you have all these competing layers of government from the central down to all these locally elected uh, city mayors and provincial governors and local parliaments. Plus, you have a lot of what they call ego sectoral, sec ministerial ego uh, between the ministries in Indonesia fighting for influence really at the, the court of the president. So I think it was always going to be hard to implement the sort of lockdowns that we we've seen in Australia. And Indonesia also doesn't have the financial firepower to give the support necessary if you're going to tell the majority of Indonesians who work in the informal sector that they can't go out. They can't work from home if you're working as, as a driver, or a day laborer, etc. So Indonesian government would need to be paying for those people to survive and it wasn't able to. I think the challenge though has been even within those boundaries, the government hasn't done a good job. It's had a really unclear communication strategy in the early days. Jokowi saw this as something of an opportunity to attract tourists to Indonesia who didn't want to go to China or other places. The government ministers at various times have played down the risks of the virus and Indonesia hasn't been able to increase its testing capacity sufficiently. So it still has one of the lowest testing rates in the world. Uh, meanwhile, kind of the caseload and the death toll has been steadily rising, not at a spectacular rate, but no one's quite sure of where the real figures are because of that lack of, of testing capacity. So it was a difficult situation to begin with, but they haven't done a great job, frankly. The hope is that Jokowi is someone who can adjust to different situations. He is able to recover. It's not an ideological issue. It's a capacity issue. And I think a problem that in the early days, the government wasn't taking this seriously enough. But ultimately, it'll be very hard for the economy to get back on track uh, while the virus is still in circulation. But on the other hand, if they just shut down the economy, Indonesians won't be able to work, won't be able to, to eat. It's a really difficult position. And I think it's going to hang over Indonesia's development prospects for quite some time. Um, it's likely to be a kind of medium to long term economic crisis, even once the pandemic in itself has, has been overcome. And yet there's still the desire to, you know, open up some sort of business with Australia. Maybe it was just with Bali to get tourists back into there if they can make Bali safe, but there's still that kind of desire. That segues kind of awkwardly into my next question, which is to talk about the relationship that Australia has with Indonesia. And we knew that there was a good relationship between Jokowi and, and Turnbull, a good personal relationship there. So how is that between Jokowi and Prime Minister Scott Morrison? And how concerned should Australia be about Indonesia's move towards 
kind of populist leadership and the apparent decline of democracy over there. I think that the relationship seems to be decent. I mean, Supremacist Scott Morrison attended Jokowi's inauguration. Uh, then earlier this year, Jokowi came to Canberra for, for a state visit and to address the Australian Parliament, which I think had only happened once before under the mm. previous president, Cecilio Bambang Yudhoyono. So that's good. I think more generally, the bilateral relationship is probably as good as it's been in a long time. And it's really across a broad area of sectors, which is good to see. It's not just about two political leaders who may or may not get on in general terms, but it's about these deeper connections between the business community, the defense forces, the military, etc. So I think that's really positive to see the relationship moving in that direction. And that increasingly Indonesian and Australian officials aren't just talking to each other about the bilateral relationship, but how they see the huge changes that are taking place in our region in terms of great power politics, the implications of that for the, the established order that we, we've seen in the region and where things are going. So, for example, um, there's talk this year that a new trilateral relationship between India, Indonesia and Australia may move ahead with the foreign ministers and defence ministers of all three countries meeting to talk about sort of regional security, regional issues, which I think is a positive sign of, of the flowering of, of the relationship. The challenge, as you say, is, is partly um, what's been happening in domestic politics in Indonesia, the concern that on Jokowi's watch, uh, there's growing pressure on democratic practices, on the power of the, the anti-corruption agency, as, as I talked about, but also a sense that with Jokowi having amassed so much political power, there isn't really enough debate in civil society, that government critics are coming under pressure. So that, I think, makes things a bit difficult. Of course, Australia isn't, by and large, in the relationship to promote democracy in Indonesia. But I think these sorts of problems do potentially uh, throw up issues. But I do think there's a new maturity on both sides to be able to overcome differences of opinion in the way that in the past um, there wasn't. So issues that in the past would have led to ambassadors being withdrawn potentially on both sides. I think now I would hope that there's an ability, even if there's a disagreement over the course of Indonesian democracy or over the implementation of some rules and how they affect Australian business, that both governments would have the ability to look beyond that in the interest of building a broader and more long-lasting relationship. Just one more question before we throw it to the audience here. Indonesia has a two-term limit and Jokowi would be looking to shore up his legacy soon because he's getting close to the end of his second term. So what do you think his legacy will be? And here I'm uh, kind of surprised to have to point the direction of the conversation, giving us Jokowi towards bringing in a successor almost and, and kind of like grooming his own dynasty. The legacy question, I think, has changed a lot because of the pandemic. So previously, I think we would have looked to Jokowi's impact on the economy, particularly his infrastructure plans and this, this ambition he had to build a, a whole new capital city in Kalimantan, uh, mm. sort of Canberra on steroids. That would have been really a kind of centerpiece, I think, of his legacy. All, all those plans and his work on the economy is now under threat because of the economic impact of the pandemic. So in a way, how he handles this pandemic will have a big impact on his broader legacy in terms of economic management. I think that's the first thing. On the second question, Jokowi is a leader who likes the surprise, and he shocked many people last year when he helped smooth the path into politics of his son and his son-in-law, um, because he, if anything, was the consumer outsider. He rose to the top because he was uh, you know, from a humble family. He'd worked his way up, built his own business, 
uh, become mayor of his hometown, governor of Jakarta. He fought to the top with his own skill, his own talent, and um, really while the elites were trying to keep him down to a certain extent. So now to see him effectively founding his own political dynasty has been very disappointing for many civil society activists in, in Indonesia. But I think it just speaks to the broader context of the importance of family in politics. Political parties in Indonesia don't really stand for much except getting power and getting profits out of politics. There's not much ideology to differentiate them. And so they often look to names that people know. And that's obviously going to be dynasties in many cases. So if you look at the other six presidents that Indonesia has had, uh, five of the six have their descendants active in politics today. So Jokowi, if anything, is going with the norm. And of course, we can look more broadly across Asia from, from Shinzo Abe to Xi Jinping, uh, Sheikh Hasina to Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, not to mention looking more broadly, you know, the, the Clintons, the Bushes, and perhaps the Trump dynasty. So this isn't something unique to Indonesia, but I think it is a, a concern for those who'd hoped that Indonesia would move to a more kind of contested and open democratic politics. All right, we'll throw to the audience now. Uh, the first question that we've got is from uh, Roberto Calanzi. Uh, Roberto, I will allow you to talk and you can ask your question to Ben. Thank you very much. I think you've already sort of addressed and touched on um, my question, but it's about the complexity and the size and the breadth and the scale of Indonesia, uh, the geography, the population, the fact that it's a, an archipelago of a thousand islands, etc. And whether Jocko is, was representative of a new politics, but is he reverting back to the mean? And again, drawing on the issue about the, the Pankasila and the, the nature of the state enshrined within the constitution. Is he, again, by the sheer those institutional arrangements, bound back to revert back to the mean of, of traditional Indonesian politics? Or can he somehow break through, represent, or people that follow him, and I don't mean his current followers, but the people who will come into the presidency after him, can they change that inherent institutional conservatism, if you like, of, of Indonesia? Thank you. Thanks for the question, Roberto. Well, my book is really a story about, you know, the interplay between institutional structures, individual agency and contingency, just sheer dumb luck, if you like. And, you know, throughout history, if you're looking at any country, sometimes, you know, the structure seems to matter more than individual incidents and individual people can transform things significantly. So, so you never really know. But I think we can definitely see Jokowi, as I say in the book, reaching for the guide ropes of authoritarian rule or, or authoritarian thinking, which were never really uh, cleared away after the fall of Suharto in 1998. So I think there's still this thinking, and it's not unique to Jokowi, but across the government, if you have a problem, if you have protests in the street, if you have a pandemic, shut things down, control information, stop people criticizing the government. There's a tendency not to see the difference between opposition or criticism and attempts to destabilize the state. So I do think, in a sense, shows us that reformasi, reform from 1998, was never really as comprehensive as some people thought it was at the time. Um, but I don't think that necessarily prejudges where Indonesia goes. This is only Indonesia's second experiment with democracy. We're only 22 years in. And, you know, building a political system, building a democracy, especially in such a, a complex nation, is really a long-term task. And I think if you look in the broader perspective, it's quite remarkable how politically stable Indonesia has been, given the fears in 1998 that it would be balkanized, that it would break up, you know, that there could be some sort of coup that would bring a military leader even more repressive than Suharto. So I think once you put it in that historical context, Indonesia hasn't done a bad job. And we just can't prejudge where these things will go because there are so many factors at play individually and institutionally. 
All right, so the next question that we'll go to is uh, from Charlie Brown. Charlie, I will allow you to talk if you get a microphone invitation there. Greetings from Singapore. Wondering if you could discuss the status of the global maritime fulcrum, what it was, uh, what it accomplished, uh, where it is today, and where it might be going or not going in the future, and if there's any connection with China's Belt and Road initiatives foreseen. Thanks. That should be a pretty quick one because it's not really going anywhere. The Global Maritime Fulcrum was um, this concept that Jokowi announced early on in his presidency to build Indonesia into a maritime power. Much of it was about building out the country's infrastructure, um, but there was also an extent to which Indonesia was meant to rise up in the region and be an important voice uh, for diplomacy, uh, for the rules of the road or the rules of the sea, really, in this case. But Jokowi is not someone who's much interested in ideas. He's not really interested in foreign policy. He's interested in doing things and building things. So I think, to be fair, we have seen a push to build up Indonesia's maritime infrastructure as part of this broader infrastructure push that Jokowi has advanced in his first term. But I don't think it's really been that well coordinated. It's been quite bitty, so to speak. In in Jokowi's second term um, inauguration speech, he didn't mention it at all. He didn't really talk about foreign policy. So I think he's still interested in building infrastructure more generally, but I don't really see it as being this huge strategic push Jokowi's not interested in that kind of thing. And of course, um, as it pertains to China, China is investing a significant amount in Indonesia, but its signature project, for example, right now is the high-speed rail uh, link between Jakarta and Bandung, which has nothing to do with sort of maritime issues at all. And Chinese state-owned companies and private investors are just looking for projects where they can either make money or there's a strategic opening that would be the high-speed rail would be the first export of high-speed rail, I think, to, to the region. So there's a strategic opportunity for China there. So again, I think it's quite pragmatic from Beijing and also from an Indonesia's perspective. And I don't think it's it's really being driven much by the idea or, or any broader strategy. All right. The last one that we'll go to is uh, Janet Gibson. Uh, Janet has a, a big comment here, which is book praise, which is never a bad thing. So I'll allow her to praise your book. But also she did end it with a question. Janet, are you there? Uh, hi, Ben. just want to say I love your book. I'm, I'm on the last chapter. And uh, I think I learned more about my president, definitely. You also confirmed some of my own analysis, as well as my concerns, especially in some of you know, Jokowi's policies right now. Again, a great book. And I'm really hoping that you might continue writing about uh, Jokowi, perhaps even you know, nearing his end term. So, that actually, so that's my comment. And my question is, will you have another book? Because again, your experience, your knowledge, it will be very useful. Thank you. Thanks so much, Janet. Appreciate that. And glad you're finding it useful and enjoying it. I wanted to write this book now, six years into Jokowi's 10-year presidency, because I wanted a useful guide for policymakers, for business people, for students, for anyone interested in, in Indonesia. And I could have waited till he was out of office. It would have been much easier. The story would have been finished, as it were. Right now, we don't know where it's going to go. So necessarily, this is kind of a partial story. This is really a first stab at where Jokowi is up to now. So we'll have to see what happens in the next four years. Things may well change. He likes to be unpredictable. Politics is unpredictable. But I don't want to kind of own the Jokowi story. So my hope really was that other people look to go and write more about him as well. So I'd love to do more in future if I get a chance, because he is someone who likes to surprise. He's someone who I was really charmed by back in 2012 and fascinated by. Uh, He's frustrated many people, but I think he's done a lot. And 
I really want to see where this story goes. A lot of challenges for Indonesia, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that, you know, Jokowi embodied this great hope. He won these two great national election victories because Indonesians want to see a better country, a more equitable country. And I really hope that he can, you know, get back to the work of building that out because it matters to so many people. And sometimes it's nice when, you know, when he can go and defy his critics and show that he is able to pull things back and push things on and deliver on on many of those high expectations. All right. Well, thanks very much for that, everyone. Ben's book is available now and it's Man of Contradictions, published by Penguin Specials, a cracking read. And we do hope that there's going to be more. Thanks very much for your time and thanks very much for your questions, everyone. Thanks, Matt. That's it today for the Asia Rising podcast. If you enjoyed it, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter. Ben is at Benjamin Bland, and Latrobe Asia is at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.